expect me to talk? Good evening and welcome to episode 35 of Do You Expect Us to Talk? Um, and tonight I'm in charge again because we've got a guest, so maturity is the order of the day. <laughs> okay, before we get <laughs> on to that, let's say hello to... It's not meant to draw laughter, it's meant to draw quiet awe. Ah! Um, uh... okay, there <laughs> So with us tonight, obviously, Chris Byrne. Hello! And Becca Andrews. Hi! And from Films on Wax for his third appearance, although it won't be the last, more on that later, Charlie Brickton. Good evening. All right, so we, without further ado, let's get straight on with this. Tonight we're going to cover more films than we've covered in either of the previous shows. We're going to cover nine or ten, depending on whether we decide to talk about Spectre when we get there. Mm. But as you may remember last time, we got as far as the uh, we got as far as a view to a kill. So we pick up this time with the Living Daylights, Charlie. Absolutely, um, John Barry's swan song yeah now when we talk about this last time you you start thinking about various scores it's not till you sort of dig into them you've, you've only got the most sort of conceptual idea of it i've always remembered it as a better score than a view to a kill have i misremembered that yeah i don't think it is i have a a healthy respect for it but going back and listening to it um I think perhaps Barry was trying to keep up with the times a bit. And there are a certain amount of um, moments where kind of uses uh, synthesizers and electronics. And I don't think it works. Um, I think the, I, I really like the, um, the, the theme he came up with. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and I surprisingly like the song. Um, yeah, knowing me, knowing you. <laughs> 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 uh, so before we go any further let, let's let's hear a little bit of that then really because the the, the, the score is is really built around a couple of different songs um with a view to a kill it, it was largely a view to a kill with this one we'll just hear a little bit of the aha track and then we'll talk a little bit about why that's perhaps not as much in the score as it could be here is uh, the living daylights by aha
kind of been a bit take it or leave it about that song funnily enough though it's not as much as ubiquitous in the score as it could be no it's not i think i think i only remember it being used maybe once or twice but a lot of it the the, the what i find by watching you always kind of remember the pretenders the two pretender songs there's a romantic one and the actual one and there's you, you had that more in your head when you think of the theme for uh living daylights rather than the our heart song but um yeah, but it really does stick in your mind, though, I, I think, I think both of them. I was yeah. listening to uh, a, a Bond podcast the other day that, that ha- uh, was suggesting, because I've, I've heard sort of John Barry talk about AHA as though they were very unprofessional and difficult to work with and so on. The AHA side of that story is that um, Barry was a very strange man to work with and that he was bad-mouthing um, Duran Duran and stuff to try to bond with them. I don't know the truth of the story, but it's certainly the case that Aha and John Barry were not a match made in heaven. Certainly, he, whenever I did see him interview talking about this, and and I don't remember much of what he said. I remember more John Barry's demeanour. When he talked about Aha, it was ill-disguised disdain for them. And the song that much more of the track, uh, the, the, the score is, is built around is this one. This is Where Is Everybody Gone by The Pretenders. You might remember parts of that from the score. It's also used uh, as Necross's. Well, Necross has got it on his um, Walkman. Walkman. Yeah, yeah. One one song Walkman. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a single or tape. That's all he has. It's just on the loops. So. <laughs> yeah, he, he had the world's first iPod. We just didn't know. He just had it on. The um, and, and yeah, they, 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 use, they use a lot of this song around. Um, some of the car scenes and and so on. We hear this a lot in the theme. Yeah, particularly it's more like I say it's more to do with the action theme. You know, whenever there's like um, Dalton's having a fight with Necklace on the on the plane. Whenever there's like a a chase scene. Yeah, particularly in the in the opening title sequence as well. It's used in that as well. It's it is like the main kind of action beat of the film. It's it's used for. Whereas, uh, what is it? The what, what's what's the name of the other one? The Pretenders one. Uh, if there was a man, yeah, it, yeah, that that's more to do with like the kind of the love story with uh, what's her face? I can't remember her name, but um, Cara, yeah, Cara, Cara. yeah, <laughs> yeah Cara. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're die hard bomb fans here. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> so he's fucked it up. We all knew she was called Cara. <laughs> 
<laughs> Cara, she's blonde, she played the cello. What's not to forget? What's not to forget, yeah. <laughs> Inadvertently, you've uh, echoed my thoughts on the character quite <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But, oh, bless her. Yeah. But, you know, it's like the. You think of those two themes, you know, that's, that's probably used the scenes between them. So, uh, yeah, I. I forgot what I was going to say, but yeah, basically it's used, it's primarily used for the action beats, that, that song. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I, I really like, I really like um, Living Darts as a score though. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good good one to go out with. Whether it's better than a View, uh, View to a Kill, I don't know, I really do like the, the main theme for View to a Kill. It is pretty solid. Mm. I think because the two sound so different, like a View to a Kill is kind of very orchestral, whereas um, Living Darts has a lot more kind of like not techno but more electronic elements in it yeah. um, but I still I still think you know John Barry goes out on a high um, I would kind of I love the string arrangements in view but I because of the electronic nature of it I kind of prefer the lights a little bit more he, but yeah goes out on a high he definitely has a memorable theme you know as I was saying when you, when you walk out the, you, you are you do have like a clear like sort of you do not recognise the themes you, you are kind of like walking out almost like humming it you know you identify with them you know same with you to a kill yeah. or a, you know so you you, you know he, he, he was really, really good at that, whereas, like, the, the ones after that, maybe not so much. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, I'm not saying that particularly, but, you know, there is definitely, he you, you definitely had, like, a strong sort of beam, and you kind of recognise that when walking out the film. Yeah, okay, so that was the that was the end of sort of John Barry's uh, contribution to the series. Uh, do we think it was kind of, do, do we think that was timely? Thinking about when he went, what would he have been at this time? He would have been in his 50s. Yeah, and he, he still recorded some really good scores after that and composed some really good music. Mm. Um, did he do uh, I mean, he kind of, Dances of he did Wars? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he did Dances of Wars after that. and uh, That's a beautiful um, score. He did that, and then he did stuff like Indecent Proposal, um, which was a really, really nice score. And um, so he was he was definitely still composing really, really good music. And I think by that time, and well, I think by the Roger Moore era, to be honest with you, he was kind of very bored with Bond anyway. Um, and maybe so was gonna, I. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe kind Poor of argue, arguing with the bands and stuff, probably uh, maybe hastening his exit anyway. Yeah, he famously didn't get on, did he? Do you think no. he might have come back? at time different you know if, if things would have happened differently yeah well he he was ill when they did license to kill oh right um okay. he he was he was having throat surgery so they weren't able to uh, use him anyway yeah okay well it does move us on to the, to the next score and, and a real well we've got a we've got a few questions as we go through and this kind of hits at the heart of what I was about to say, that Barry goes out at a certain point, and perhaps what we got next time out might have been more appropriate to the film, but it might also have added to the um, feeling of detachment from the rest of the series that this film has. Martin Wiley, at Martin Wiley 1990 on Twitter, he asks, what do you think of Michael Kamen's score for Licence to Kill? He says, I thought it was out of place for a Bond film. That's quite a common view with some of these different scores, Charlie. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't know if out of place is the right thing, but yeah, Licence to Kill is a very singular film in the in the Bond series, and I think it it is very much strengthened by that. And I think because of 
the uh, contextually because of the time period that they were in as well. Um, And with Sanchez as a villain, as a kind of drug dealer. You mean Sanchez? Drug, drug, bar. Sanchez! Sanchez! Sanchez. Um, so with um, uh, is it Noriega, the, uh, the all the in South America and Latin America? Oh, yeah, the, all in Noriega. Yeah. And so this was basically was something was based in kind of the real life kind of parameters instead of what had gone previously with stuff like Leifeld and things like that and the giant volcano layers and. Giant submarine, giant um, super tankers swallowing submarines, and um, Grace Jones. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just pictured a super tanker swallowing Grace Jones. <laughs> just the other way around. I had that um, mental image as well. Very strange. I, I love Grace Jones, um, and her music as well. Her music is great. Um, but um, thank you, Charlie. This is what I was trying to tell you during the view review. But no, they weren't having any of it. Thank you. Yeah, no, she uh, she did some awesome disco tracks for some Italian crime movies in the uh, in seventies. And it's uh, she's not singing in this film. No, so <laughs> she's not. No. But anyway, so but so because of that, then this had this is much more of a of a realistic, and a lot of people say back to what Fleming saw James Bond as the kind of more much more hard edged. And you remember the furor over this when it got a fifteen. Yes, I remember. Mm, yeah. Um, and again, this is this is a film where James Bond he doesn't have his license to kill because it's revoked. I mean, that was the original title before the uh, rumor that the um, Americans didn't know what revoked meant. Um, no, so, <laughs> that was the studio overthinking it. I think yeah. that's a bit like the madness of King George. Mm. They couldn't. It, the stage play was called the madness of George the Third. And the studio reportedly were worried that Americans would think, where where was the madness of George yeah. 1 and 2? Now, those, <laughs> those stories tend to be apocryphal. Having said that, I think License Revoked would have been a far better title. Yeah. It was one of that, like as I said, for um, for California Man, which was called Encino Man in America, but because people, they thought we were marketing it abroad outside America. Us yeah, wouldn't know where Encino was. So Yeah, it's the same with um, Philosopher's Stone and Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. Surely Americans know what a philosopher is. Yeah, yeah but they, might, they might. Yeah, but they, they might not. I don't. I don't want to be rude to Americans. Um, yeah, please don't, because we Americans. have American listeners, and, and, and I know a lot of Americans that are awesome, so that's fine. Um, but I don't know if there was a thought. Again, maybe the studio Warner Brothers overthinking it and yeah. thinking, okay, if if I say philosopher, is that going to put them off and make them think that there's more thinking in it or something like that? And it's going to be something different than sorcerer, which is a much more straightforward kind of. This is a thing about magic. It's yeah, probably, it's a magical title, isn't it? It's probably more down to like the sellability of it. Really, it's like you know what I mean. Well, yeah, exactly. Like you know, it's I'm imagine. So- Sorcerer's Stone makes a lot more, like, rolls off the tongue a little bit more, you know, and it's a little bit more like, oh, everyone knows what a sorcerer is, and it kind of, you know, you can just kind of sell it a little bit more. I suppose same like License to Kill, you know, you think of James Bond, License to Kill, it's called it License to Kill rather than License for Boat, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I, I guess that's why I've always thought things like the Shawshank Redemption was a mistake. Because there would have been people who would have just sort of panicked in the queue, thinking, "Am I going to pronounce this properly?" <laughs> oh, fuck it, mouthful, oh, oh, it? fuck it, Forrest Gump, please. And, and again, that, that that was a title that was uh, well shortened from the original story. Hayworth. Yeah, yeah, because it was Rita uh, Hayworth, and yeah, ab- absolutely, it was yeah. 
Okay, let's get back to this score for a minute. Before we, there's two bits I definitely want to play, and then it's up to you where where you go, Charlie. We played this in the intro episode, but I think the the tone is very much set by the gun barrel. Yeah. Um, here is the gun barrel music to License to Kill. Now that's that's all very you know cutting and and all the rest of it and slices right through you. But then we get the theme song to the film, which I really really like. But you could argue, well, here it is. This is "License to Kill" by Gladys Knight. I know Chris is a fan of that. Charlie, Becca? Very much so, yeah. I think it's a great song. Um, and, again, it, uh, it rips off Goldfinger as well, that riff, to the point where they had to, uh, they had to credit uh, the, uh, the original writers, John Barry and the, the two songwriters, Anthony Lee and Leslie Bricus, um, because it was, because the, otherwise they would... Uh, Sued. Was you think it was? I think it was more deliberate. Like they wanted to use, like like riff on that. Uh, I suppose to kind of just rip it off blatantly. Or was oh yeah, but yeah, but, but it... kind of like to give a bit more of like a Bond theme, but a, but a, but like a, a traditional Bond feel, but like a new take on it, so to speak. Yeah, no, I, I have no doubt that that was the intention. But it is, it is, it was after the film was actually released that the uh, the, the the original writers were credited with it. So, uh, which was a tiny bit naughty, but I, th- I think it was great. And talk, going back to the uh, um, the gun barrel, I love it so much. I think it's, it's so great with those big, massive drums, and then the uh, just just, oh, it's... just the way the guitar sounds. It just sounds so just wrapped it makes up. Me, it, it makes me sad how they've not really done that since. Like, I, you know, we've not had a gun barrel quite like it, and that kind of makes me kind of a little bit sad. 
Yeah, yeah. Everything's everything's kind of always been a bit more kind of a Barry throwback and very kind of classic. Well, um, with one exception, we'll get to shortly. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly, looking at the soundtrack to this film was quite interesting because it, it, it's not a score as such. I'm looking at the License to Kill track listing now. I copied oh. them all earlier on as I was listening around some different things. Uh, there's only ten tracks on it. Uh, License to Kill's one. Dirty Love's another. If You Ask oh. Me To by Patti LaPel's another one. So it's it's taken up with songs as, as yeah. well as little bits of score. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, the um, there's there's a uh, um, I think it might be the License to Revoke one where it's almost kind of like a suite, and there's a fair bit of cues um, that are kind of in there, kind of uh, mixed together. Because um, I've a couple of times I've taken that suite apart and kind of put them in the correct order um, for that. Um, and like the various parts of the beginning when they kind of go and get Sanchez, and then subparts later with with Pam. And it's I mean, but even that, yeah, there's there's quite a f- few bits in the score that are not on the soundtrack, sadly. Because um, I, I think it's a really really good score, and I think something that that came and was certainly about. Um, was there was a real kind of texture to his work, and especially with this. And in you, you had either side of this, you had um, Lethal Weapon, and then you had Die Hard, and then you had License to Kill. And now they all they all sound like different scores, but they've all they all got the same kind of style that he had with the kind of Latin guitar and the very pointed brass. And it's it's a very different sound to John Barry, um, while kind of still some, being in the same kind of musical um, grouping. But the way he's just able to immediately evoke the kind of hard-edged um, kind of tone that is needed for this film, again, to make it stand out from any Bond film that had gone before and really anyone since, really. And certainly with how everything is around Sanchez and his dealings in um, the uh, the Latin American countries, that that uh, that Latin American guitar that Cayman is so famous for, um, and again Cayman previously had uh, had done music, had done arrangements for Pink Floyd and people like that, and had had his own albums, um, and obviously with his work with Eric Clapton as well on. Lethal Weapon and Edge of Darkness, and with Highlander, work with Queen as well. So he was well versed in blending and bringing. Um, Michael Kamen worked on Highlander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He did the I score. Don't, for I, don't, I, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, and it's a beautiful score. And again, yeah. it's barely any of it's ever been released, or the only stuff that's really been released properly, apart from like a few keys, is the uh, is the Queen's music. The Queen's yes. music. Yeah, it's, the, it's, the, it's kind of magic. The album is really only kind of like the Highlander soundtrack you can get, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the problem is it's a bit like the Flash soundtrack in that it's the most dated thing about it. You know, like or hate the, the, some of the songs on it, they have dated in the way they've just put together. Yeah. Very 80s, isn't it? Very 80s soundtrack. Mm. Yeah. yeah, whereas Cayman's K- K- score is, is a really beautiful piece of kind of fantasy work. Um, and again, like like the flash parts of the Flash Gordon, because Flash Gordon was while Queen did some of the music. Um, there was also a composer called Howard Blake um, who worked on with Queen on Flash Gordon and did a lot of the kind of orchestral arrangements and stuff. Um, and again, there's not a lot of that that's available. Um, 
and again with yeah because with with the Highlanders because Cayman is is a, was such a popular composer and um, there's a lot of kind of stuff that he I mean he did after that not long after that Robin Hood as well Prince of Thieves um, he had a huge hit with uh, Brian Adams as well with the with that song that I'm sure everyone knows but uh, yeah but it's like everyone kind of identifies with the the music that he that he did everyone's kind of like recognised it at some point yeah. I mean, he, I mean, even Lee Fawetley. What, what strikes me about Michael Kamen is you look through his um, the films that he's composed, and they're not just like kind of like your, your late nineties, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, late eighties, early nineties action kind of thrillers like Diehards and Lethal Weapon type things. He, he's done loads of different little things that you think, oh shit, he did that. And he's just—I yeah. re- think—I think he's one of those composers that is like it, I don't think you quite realise how like how. You know what's the right word? How flexible he is. He can he can kind of just like versatile. Yes, that's the one. He can kind yeah. of just he can just sort of like pretty much do anything he wants and make it work, and but still make it his own. Um, and I think you know it's one of those like composers that maybe doesn't quite get celebrated as much as they should because um, because some of his iconic scores are very very tied to the era they came from. Yeah, or possibly. at least the bits we remember. It you just mentioned Highlander, yeah. Die Hard, Lethal Weapon. Now. Charlie's almost certainly right that there are parts of that that are going to be timeless, but they're very, very late 80s scores. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Or, or they are in the public consciousness anyway. Yeah, but he did X-Men as well, the first X-Men film. Yeah, he did, yeah. And, and I, it's, I didn't it's, know either. And oh, it's, oh, it's, completely forgotten about that. It's, it's, it's funny Open, enough as well. Open Rage, um, Band of Brothers as well, if you remember the Band of Brothers. Yeah, the Band of Brothers music, yeah. he did that as well. Oh. So if, you, if you watch Disney DVDs I now, the Disney DVDs, they all open with his music from Robert Hood, Prince of Thieves, the main yes, theme do. from that. Um, another, another interesting thing about License to Kill and Cayman was that originally um, what they wanted to do was tr- have a go at the main title theme themselves because Cayman had nothing to do with the uh, the License to Kill theme, um, the, the Gladys Knight song. So what he did is he brought Eric Clapton in and he brought Vic Flick in oh. and had them have a go at, uh, at creating a theme. Um, and supposedly it uh, wasn't amazing and to this day for whatever reason it's never ever been heard I don't know if it ever will if if License to Kill does get a more kind of expanded um, edition I mean it it might be it's worth mentioning as well that um, in the uh, late 90s early 2000s um, there was basically they reissued um, all of the Bond scores on CD up to that point. Um, and several of them were expanded. Um, so you had like, uh, there was uh, Dr. No and Thunderball and Live and Let Die and I think on Her Majesty's Secret Service as well um, and You Only Live Twice. Um, so, But they only had a budget for, um, for doing a certain amount. And License so the, to Kill adjusted as the lowest grossing Bond film. Yeah, so it was only really up to Live and Let Die that they went with mm. terms of, of expanding them. Mm. Um, so, and it's always been a kind of contentious <coughs> thing and, mm. and people kind of think, thought something might happen with the 50th anniversary, but it didn't, where they might have done something. Um, just I, would lo- I would love to hear what, what it would have sounded like. I mean, it could have sounded like crap, but I'm just so yeah. intrigued at like, the idea of like kind of like an Eric Clapton, uh, Michael Kamen kind of 
Bomb theme. Uh, it'll be very interesting. I imagine it'll be very more guitar laden rather than vocal, but. Yeah. I do think the Bond series kind of misses a trick with this sort of thing. I think back to the 50th anniversary. The films themselves, which is the most important thing, tend to be well restored, looked after, mm. and everything else. That's the main thing. But when you think of the 50th anniversary, first series I can think of to get to 50 years, certainly of this sort of size. And what did we get? We got a very substandard video game. We got um, we got a documentary which wasn't even released in this country, wasn't even shown in Britain. Uh, everything or nothing. Eventually, we got a DVD release, and I do think and they, they you know Bond never turns up at anything like Comic Con or anything like that. It doesn't have its own equivalent of celebration or you know Star Trek Las Vegas is coming up soon. There's there's nothing really for Bond like that, and and I think they miss a trick with some of this stuff. Having said that, License to Kill. Uh, just anecdotally, if I go to our YouTube page, and that's not the way most people listen to the show. Most people will get it from iTunes or Stitcher or the site itself. But we do have people watching on um, YouTube as well. And License to Kill is one of our least watched shows, both of them, because it just doesn't – it still doesn't have that sort of clout that's, that so many of the other films have. So I think it will always be quite low down the list to get that sort of luxury treatment. Not on my list. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but for Chris, it's another story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just to kind of like answer the, uh, the well, at least my take on the question, um, is I, I think, yeah, it, like, License to Kill does stand out, uh, but I think it's because it's the only one of its kind. I think, you know, I, I, I know what, I'm kind of like, sound like a broken record, if Dalton did another couple or something like that. Uh, possibly that kind of tone would have carried through. It might not have sound so jarring had it had like a little bit of a run, you know. Because because it because it is it is stand out and is vastly different. I do think that is why it may sound like not quite the bomb theme to some people's ears. Um, I mean, I I I do have issues. Well, not, I say issues. I do get what people mean because it does. I do hear little sort of cues that I've heard from like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and that. But you know, it, it is what it is. You know, I think if it if it stay if it stayed on track, if you know, had it gone through at least another like one or two or something, it wouldn't sound like so bad to people. Or I mean, not bad, but you know what I mean. Just doesn't wouldn't sound so as jarring. Or if we'd got to the point where every score was a different composer, perhaps yeah. um, we might have got to the point that that's the new normal. Yeah, you know. So yeah, it it, it is. It, there was a full stop on this. We do have a question a little bit later on. Well, it's an offshoot of a question later on that really does talk about continuity. So we'll come back to that. Char- uh, sorry, Charlie, did you have something you wanted to add about this? Yeah, I have a, a fun fact. Hang on, it's party time! Come on, Carl, check back! <laughs> I think Dave just come. I think he just had a party in his pants. I did after that jingle. I don't need to be invited to that. Everyone's invited. Whether he wants to be or not. Everyone invited to the pants party. Oh dear. That's fun, folks. Anyway, Charlie, what's your fun fact? Anyway, right. In Licence to Kill, um, Michael Kamen uses the James Bond theme 17 times. 
Yeah, that, that's actually that's another thing I do really like his use of it. I I, I, I think I, I think people kind of forget that, but that the bit where he's been loaded in the helicopter, he, he nails it. It kind of feels like a like a modern like revamped version of the bomb theme. I think like the new films these days tend to kind of go very traditional with the bomb theme. This kind of I think this is the only real time I've actually heard it kind of a bit more jazzed up and a bit more modern sounding. Yeah, it's, it's really swaggering. Yeah. It's, it's, again, it sounds dramatic and it goes like, you know, it builds up and it just, and it, it, I think it's, it's, it's completely un, unashamed to just go like, yeah, we're just going to full-blown guitar kind of thing, we'll build up kind of like really, really like sort of dark and smoldering and just like go cheesy guitar riff, you know, I, I, I really, really like it, but there you are. I love license skill, that's basically it. <laughs> So, uh, in line with being the sort of guy who watched uh, Moonraker five times in order to produce a really, really averagely, <laughs> averagely average podcast on it, um, I've been all over the Golden Eye track today, partly because of the next question, which is, uh, although I'd already been listening to it by Tom Barwick at Tommy Come Lately, he's asked, "Is the Golden Eye score the worst of the series?" Well. I think we can answer that bit fairly quickly. But the second bit of his question is, are there any bits you like? And I know there are, so I had to have a good listen to it to find out what they were. So let's <laughs> let's deal with the question first. Uh, in any order you like, is GoldenEye score the worst of the series? No. <laughs> Which is? Forget Never Say Never Again, by the way. We're talking Nine of a day. You think that's a worse score? Oh, dear. Um, I think... I, 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 isn't it... Isn't there like an alternate GoldenEye score floating around the internet somewhere? Somebody respawned well, it, or did I dream it? I don't know. Well, they, 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 David Arnold um, did a version for the, the video game when they of released course. it. Yes, of course. Yeah, apart from the video game, obviously. I, I think um, it is the worst score. Some parts are good, but apart from the um, the tank chase, is probably the best is the highlight which um, in, in, in GoldenEye. Which no, exactly. Is... But yeah, which you didn't even do. So yeah. But um, I would say probably that and Dying of the Day are the two worst scores. Chris. I'm just trying to think because I, you know, it's kind of like I, I do really like parts of it, and it's not just the tank chase. There is like the the kind of there's a very lush kind of very stereotypical bond uh, bond. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to play a few bits, good and bad, in a minute. Uh, particularly mm. with like, uh, is it uh, Nina? Is it Nina? I'm I don't know. Natalia. Sorry. Natalia, there you are. Um, we'll come to that in just a moment. Uh, I, which I think really kind of like stands out but apart from that there is like it yeah i don't know i think we think the, the problem with it is it doesn't sound well to me it doesn't sound as bad when you're watching the film but if you what you listen to it in isolation it sounds fucking dreadful particularly the uh the that car chase it just sounds so fucking naff yeah the car chase before we before we move on to charlie um the car chase is a track on the soundtrack called Ladies First. Let's play a clip of that.
Now, when I was talking on the review and when we've talked about the GoldenEye soundtrack in the past, what I've always said about it is that I think the bad bits are so bad they overwhelm the good. In that when I think of the GoldenEye soundtrack, I think of the gun barrel. And here's just a quick clip of that. And then I think of that lady's first track I've just played. And they overwhelm some of the good bits. And, and I... They really stand out. Um, Charlie, what do you think? I, I agree. I mean, I, I think maybe calling it terrible is is maybe a bit too non-constructive. Um, I think because of where it came, uh, what, six years after, uh, after License to Kill, and with Brosnan and it's James Bond and he's back and it's the 90s and they went for something so different and so outlandish and the composer Eric Serra is a fine composer I mean he he's done some great music for Luke Besson films and stuff like The Big Blue and things like that um but it's so kind of idiosyncratic <laughs> and really well, kind of you let, let me just stop you there because let's just play the one last shit bit that i want to play <laughs> before we start talking about some of the positives because there are positives in this score having said that eric sarah himself can be heard on the score uh james bachelor who's uh runs a podcast called bond and beyond has always said that he thinks eric sarah had a blocked up nose when he's like this <laughs> oh, is, it, oh, is, it, is this his peter gable impression this is the experience <laughs> of love. He's got a cold. So we've given you uh, at least three things there we think are bloody awful on the score. But it's not all... And and I agree, though, that you can almost see the producers. 
this is the most important Bond film in the series, past the first couple, because it's been away for six years. The last one underperformed. Uh, the Cold War has ended. The uh, Berlin Wall's come down. Um, sort of sexual politics are on, are on the change. And you've got... You can imagine the producers sat there thinking, what other spy films, European-based sort of spy films, of their uh, spies of the assassins have there been? Well, there was Leon, the professional last year, the, uh, the Femme Nikita. And you can see where they came to this guy. And I've always said that if you experiment, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And I think, so fair play to them for having a go. And the score isn't all bad. Charlie, can you think off the top of your head of bits of the score you do like? Yeah, I think what what Chris was saying with the uh, the, the love theme for Natalia, I think some of that is is really nice. Mm. Um, and there are little bits and pieces that it's kind of I'm kind of torn between being really interested in the direction that he took and the kind of ambition of the score, and then looking at the bits that are kind of like appropriate i don't know if appropriate is the right word but because i said it does sound very european but it doesn't ever sound british no it doesn't and it doesn't it doesn't feel like a bond score i mean even even with all the stuff that where he was kind of running off being a, a rogue agent in license to kill came was still able to inflect some of the british tone um of bond and here it's just really not there. But again, and it's something that I will definitely discuss more when we come to the David Arnold scores, that the one piece that people always do go on about, which is the uh, um, the tank chase, the uh, pleasant drive in St. Petersburg, that in the film was um, a piece by uh, a guy called John Altman. And um, it's just basically traditional Bond. It's just the Bond theme in a big traditional arrangement, like everyone knows, and it's kind of like a crowd pleaser. And that's what works so well for that scene. Yeah. Looking at some of the bits that stand out to me, because I say I've listened to a fair bit of this today, um, I think I'm going to play a little bit from a track called That's What Keeps You Alone. This is played over Brosnan sat on the beach, uh, thinking about what he's got to do in sort of bringing down 006. So that's what keeps you alone. The other bit of music that's always stuck out to me, and, and I got it wrong in the early earlier episode because I think I think I referred to it as the Golden Eye. It's not, but the bit where the bit at the end, the sort of the action sequence at the end, there's a track called "Run, Shoot, and Jump." We'll play a little bit of that because I actually think this is very, very good. 
yeah, this this score's far from from all bad, isn't it, Charlie? I don't know what you think of the theme tune as well. Um, I like it. Um, my usual um distaste for anything touched by U two aside. Um, <laughs> oh, the, I love U twelve, old U two anyway. No, I think it's it's a it's a really good song. And, Let's hear um, a little. We should hear just a little bit of it. That's what I think. It, it, it has a good riff, and it just sticks with it. Yeah, it steadies the ship for Boston to uh, to come in. I think it's sexy, it's slinky, it's kind of everything a Bond film should be. Bond, Bond theme, it should be, I think. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I think in answer to your question, Tom, I think we can all look at parts of the score that are all right. I think we're all kind of agreeing, though, that the bad bits are so bad that it kind of stick in your mind. And uh, it's very hard to shift when you think about Goldeneye. And whenever I think about Goldeneye, I think of that, that car chase in the hills above Monaco and them driving around and knocking over all the uh, the cyclists to that fucking awful song. <laughs> yeah. mm. But next time out, we get uh, a new composer and he goes on to do, what is it, seven? No, five of them. Goes on to do five scores. David Arnold. Not Tom. Not, not Tom Arnold, no. Uh, Sadly not, no. No, no, it's not the theme tune to Roseanne. Tomorrow never dies, Charlie. What do we think of this score? I think it's really good. Um, I think it was a really impressive debut by Arnold. Um, I think the gun barrel is amazing. Um, Well, I was looking at this earlier on because looking at the track on um, on the soundtrack... The second track, White Knight, White includes, Knight. includes the um, gun barrel. Mm. So what I'm actually going to do is play this gun barrel, and, and the confluence of this with Brosnan makes this my favourite gun barrel. Not necessarily the best music, but it's my favourite gun barrel and my favourite Brosnan music to go with the gun barrel. Uh, but I'm going to let it run a little bit into the White Knight track that follows it. 
and you can hear just a little bit of, you can certainly hear quite a lot of, you know, a very, very James Bondian theme here. So this is uh, The Gun Barrel followed by a little bit of White Knight. Now, I think that's terrific. Absolutely. The, the entire White Knight queue and then the uh, the queue that follows it, which is Backseat Driver, um, <clears throat> is just incredible. And I, th- I think, to, to be honest, the sequence as well is probably my favourite thing from the Brosnan era. I think the, the sequence is, is so brilliant. But um, Arnold Arnold's cues for those for those that opening sequence is just absolutely brilliant and really kind of classic Bond that really kind of separates it from Goldeneye straight away. Yeah, it's not. I think it's like not ashamed to be what it is. It's very much like, oh fuck it, we're a Bond film. Here you are. You know what I mean? It's like I think after last last the last film Goldeneye, kind of tried to like weren't a bit sure trying to overthink it maybe because it had so much on it, but. Now, yeah, like good. now, after it's Golden has been hit, like, well, let's just be unapologetic about it. Let's just like go full on, and let's be completely classic and and, and very much like in your face with it. Very upbeat, kind of like bomb theme, I think. Yeah, and I, I do think there are se- there are scenes in this film elevated by the music. And another one I was listening to is the scene where uh, Paris goes to his uh, hotel room. Mm. The, the track, uh, I think it's just called Paris and Bond. Let's just hear a little bit of that.
just some really lovely stuff. But I also think it's a score that's a little bit. There are bits in it that try to move with the time of the actual track on the the album, uh, Backseat Driver. This is the little bit that plays over uh, the car chase uh, in the car park. And it's, it's yeah. Uh, can we just play a little bit of that? So, yeah, so the score is a little bit moving with the times. The other thing with this score is that there's an awful lot of the Bond theme in it, I seem to remember. Mm. Every time Bond does anything, the Bond plays yeah, it. Yeah, you've got the, you've got the Bond theme. Like that. And and I, I, I think it's kind of vaguely Bondian. It's got the theme to accompany it. It's kind of like, I don't, I don't mind it. It's always good to hear the theme, but it's a bit overkill in this movie, I think. Well, I, I think that this is where um, my feelings about David Arnold's scores for the Brosnan era um, came in where um, with David Arnold getting the job because of the uh, the album he did, The Shaken Not Stirred. Mm, that's a brilliant which, album, by the way. Yeah, did, which did, is all the other... Is that why he got the job? Because that kind of came out at the same time, didn't it? Did it not? We no, did, it did that cover of um, of Majesties, didn't it? It kind of blended like Majesties and then yeah, the, that's um, the, the space sequence from... Yeah, Propellerheads, that was it, yeah. It may be that because um, when did it come out? Is that came out? Yeah, because they both came out around the same time, um, and they were both on the. Uh... Yeah, so it may be that um, because of the industry kind of thing, they hit it through the industry that he was doing it. Because I don't know how long it took, um, but it is apparently the case that they did hear that, hear that, and decided that he would be the. Uh, the one to uh, to take over, um, and I think that's the thing is is that there is a lot of David Arnold um, that shows his uh, rightful um, love for Barry, and through that there is a lot of times where he does feel like he is emulating Barry quite a lot. And Tomorrow Never Dies is interesting because it feels like there are other parts that emulate Barry, and then there are the other parts like the the backseat driver one um where he kind of tries to he puts in the electronic elements and it's kind of like the the drum and bass things and uh at the same time as well he did the uh the the moby version of the james bond theme as well um and i don't really to think it, it works fit. it just doesn't fit it, it, just, yeah. 
let's hear a little bit. Let's hear a little bit of it. Um, it was a bit ubiquitous around its time. I heard it in quite a few different places. This is the Moby reworking of the James Bond theme. I, I don't like that either, to be honest with you. <laughs> but I, yeah, but I, I think it's it is a really good score. Um, I think it is probably the best of the uh, the Brosnan era, um, and uh, it, it was a really impressive debut score for well debut Bond score from Arnold. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting as well that the, uh, the again with the themes he wrote he wrote the theme Surrender. Um, which is used all the way through the score. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, I meant to say it. It does remind me of the Living Daylights in that way, in that it, it picks an alternate song and go, runs with that one, really. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't mind the uh, um, the Cheryl Crow one. I don't mind it at all. I know a lot of people really dislike it, and there were tons of people that uh, that, that tried to um, do the uh, that tried to get uh, get get the uh, the gig for the main title. Um, but my one issue with the surrender, which is obviously at the end, it's played at the end of the film. The actual song is just the vocal. I just I think the song is great. The structure is really great. The melody is great. But Katie Lang's vocals sound like a parody. I do like Katie Lang more than I like Cheryl Crow. I think, but I, I think because. My big problem with Tomorrow Never Dies, the song, is Cheryl Crow. I think it's a pretty mm. good song with a wailing, horrible vocal <laughs> vocal on it that doesn't fit. But if you take the quality of the vocal before, if you just focus on the songs, I think they got them the right way round. I do think that because Katie Lang is arguably more talented, certainly has more artistic credibility, there is a feeling that it's, it's the said thing. It's just the thing you say, oh, they should have gone with that one. I think they got them the right way around. Let's just play a little bit of both of them. Uh, this is Tomorrow Never Dies by Cheryl Crow. I will, uh, I'm only going to really play the start of the song, to be honest with you, and most of the caterwauling comes a bit later into it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, good song, fucked up by someone who can't sing. Tomorrow Never oh. Dies.
like the wrong type of singer really isn't it it's just the wrong thing for it but then we move on to the the song charlie's just mentioned this is surrender by kd lang before we go into it if you think about the score there's an awful lot of this in it but i can't see this over a title sequence this is surrender by kd lang written with david arnold sort of imagine um imagine like what what you know what the response would be if you'd swap those over so for like if he had if surrender was like the main title theme mm. but that'd be different because like the song itself is much more um it's more bombastic and you kind of need somebody with a big voice so maybe somebody like katie lang or perhaps even shirley bassey if she'd covered it you want somebody with a really loud you know kind of big voice as it were to kind of really um. project that song I'm I'm with Dave on this. I I I think um, the Shell Crow song is the better song to have on the front of the film. I think the Katie Lang song it suits uh, having been in school. I think as a song, it doesn't get past like the intro. I think it, it starts off quite bombastic. You think, oh yes, this is a really good one theme. And I don't. Th- I think beyond that, it kind of just like dirges out into like kind of like really unmemorable kind of just carry on. Really, I don't. Yeah, you know, I, I think it kind of just carry gets on. Complete- well, I think it just gets completely unforgettable. It starts off like with a kind of really memorable kind of like brass 
kind of like uh, tune, and it, then it just kind of like drears out. It doesn't go anywhere. So I, I do think the show crow is the better of the two. Um, but I, but I think it's it it is where it should be really. It's the Kenny Lang is better infused in the score itself rather than the show crow. Yeah. But uh, David Arnold definitely did well enough to get another go. So two years later, he's back with The World Is Not Enough. Uh, Before we go into the score itself, here's the theme by Garbage. theme is one that I've always thought is just there. It's alright. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing Not that amazing about it. It's alright. <laughs> I think it's nice. It's, they're a really kind of left field choice mm. um, to, to be honest. But I suppose <clears throat> is this, is is it The World Is Not Enough, the one with Goldie in it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's kind of the almost kind of had you the always remember a already. quality thespian, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was that either that his, or, his or, or his gold teeth from his acting. This score doesn't massively stand out to me. There are a couple of bits that do, but I think mm. kind of one's more emotional and where the story goes. One's definitely action. Uh, the boat chase has probably become the iconic part of this film. Yeah. From the start of the film. Uh, the track is known as Come on 007, Your Time Is Up. Let's just play a clip of that.
and this is where I struggle a bit with David Arnold, where you get these action sequences. I, I just think they're a little bit too fucking jazzed up, and uh, they, they seem like they're trying too hard. Yeah, some of it, it, it does kind of feel that way. I mean, I, I think in The World Is Not Enough, his, he kind of evolved a bit with the electronics, and they they stood up much less than In Tomorrow Never Dies, and they feel much more kind of blended, and the, the kind of boat chases in there as well. And there's two two bits that I always remember from the score. Um, one is later on in the film, but the uh, the other is just this little bit um, in the uh, in the boat chase bit, where it goes do 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 do. That's where he straightens his tie. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. tie underwater. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. that seems to be a Brosnan thing. Didn't he do that in Goldeneye as well? Or was it, was it those the two yeah, examples? he did it in the tank as well. He kind of popped his head out of the tank, straightened his tie, and then yeah. carried on. He straightens his cock when he's in the bedroom. <laughs> we just can't oh, see no. that. He just gets it out, just doesn't. And that music plays. I'm impressed that we were able to go an hour without you mentioning someone's cock. Um, yeah. So uh, that's, that's got to be it's a record. new record. That's great. Don't, 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 I've already mentioned him coming, though. Once I throw in all the music cues, it will look like I was like really like. <laughs> it will look like I managed two hours, which I, I don't do that with anything bedroom related, believe me. <laughs> Um, but uh, the only the only other bit that that really stood out um, for me was um, some there was just some really nice again Barry esque kind of lush string arrangements where we uh, go to see the pipeline um, in whatever country it is that he goes to. He goes, um, to, he goes to Azerbaijan. He goes to Baku. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the bit. Yeah, so there's some really nice kind of arrangements there. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's, it's again it's, it's a decent score, and you can see that there's an evolution there. But on the other hand, it, it's not anywhere as near as memorable as uh, as um, Tomorrow Never Dies. In which case, let's move on because <laughs> I was going to play a little bit of a lecturer's theme, but frankly, it doesn't stand out that amazingly well. Um, our next question is: uh, Wow, it had to happen, didn't it? Is Die Another Day the absolute worst Bond theme? That's Kevin Dillon at Kevin Wright stuff on Twitter, right as in writing. Uh, Charlie? Yes. There you go. Chris? <laughs> um, it, yeah. <laughs> Becca? Yes. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so, Kevin, that's a yes. That's the, the, the only reason why I hesitate, it does have a nice underlying theme, but... like I actually think it works quite well with the title sequence. But when yeah. you sit and listen the, the, to the, the lyrics and the bollocks she's taught, it's shite. The, the string part of it, I think, is really, really good. But it's just like, what? Everything else is just, what the fuck? Like, what? Yeah, the, kind what? Of the, the, the string intro is probably the best bit to it. And then the rest of it is just like, oh, shut yeah. up. You know, Madonna, you're better than this. Come on. No, oh. she's not. <laughs> <laughs> not. Not for a while, she hasn't been. Well no, but, you know. Um, if they have got her in the 80s, then... Uh, Imagine how different it could have been. Oh, God, certainly yeah. different. So. Uh, here it is, Die Another Day. Oh, I suppose we're talking about it, so here it is. Oh, dear.
Did you all enjoy that? My ears, my ears. Okay. The, anno- the annoying thing is, is like you said, the, the title sequence is really interesting, the the way it's done, and uh, that was again, that was kind of like a first for Bond, kind of really integrating the title sequence into the actual story. But the song is so diabolically shit, then it just negates anything interesting about the sequence because you're just clamping your hands over your ears, shouting at the cinema screen to fucking stop. Mm. I bet you get as much as we do. Yeah. I think I said this podcast one night when I heard it, like before before I saw the film, I was like, can I pray? Please let it just be like the single remix version of what's actually going to be in the film. I was like just praying when it came up and it, when it started, it was like, oh, fucking it's not, is it? <sighs> but yeah. Yeah. Uh, the score itself, I thought was, there, there was a couple of interesting things in it. I mean, in a film that really um, spends its whole time going, look, 40 years, look, look at this film, reference to this film, reference to that film. Certainly, as I listened to it earlier, I could hear a little bit of Barry and a little bit of Diamonds Are Forever in a track known as Icarus. Charlie, what did you make of this score? Um, I don't think it's a bad score. I mean, it's quite a good score. It's, it's, I find it's quite just hard, quite hard um, to disassociate the film from the score, um, and I haven't really listened to it outside of the film um, that enough. Um, but um, it's, it's certainly a, a decent score, and I think Arnold is someone that's fairly used to. Um, like Barry before him writing decent music for shit films. Because um, <laughs> his, his score for Godzilla, which is another diabolically shit film, um, the Roland Emmerich one, is wow. a really brilliant score. Um, Great score, and, rubbish film. There we are. Yeah, absolutely. And then Shaft as well. Um, again, a pretty terrible film, but um, the, the score is really good. And um, he, like, um, obviously all the stuff John Barry did, not just with Bond, but he did, like, King Kong and the Black Hole and all that kind of thing and Howard the Duck and uh, kind of really terrible films that uh, that he did really good music for. Um, but, I mean... Howard the Duck, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never knew yeah, that. Absolutely. Oh, my God. 
yeah, he did fantastic music for it as well. Oh dear. Um, but uh, I mean, uh, but it's it, it's a good score. Um, but again, I, I don't really. And again, this is me um, not researching that well today. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't really kind of know it that well outside of the film, which I don't ever want to see again. And until I got the uh, the big fifty uh, box set, the Blu-ray set, uh, which luckily I was able to get, I won in a competition. Um, before that was the first time I'd ever um, owned the film because I refused to buy it before. <laughs> got it by default. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's not uh, let's not focus on it too hard. Then there were a couple of other things we could talk about in the score, but to be honest, I don't must be repeating myself because I do think some some of when he jazzes up his scores a little bit. I don't mean jazz; I just mean more up tempo. I think they can get a bit too busy, and certainly that I was listening to the hovercraft chase music earlier, and I just thought that this is too much. That's one, of my main, whole... that's one of my main problems with the Dino of the Day score as well. I mean, I love David Arnold as a composer. I love his music. Mm. Um, so it doesn't kind of, you know, I, I love all of his scores. But I think that's a problem with the Dino of the Day. That's, there's just too much going on musically. You've got kind of like the strings, um, sort of brass, and then there's kind of like sort of layers of percussion on top of it that you just don't need. It's too much going on. Mm. And it detracts to, you know, it's quite, you've got a lot of frenetic action going on in the, in the, yeah, on the screen, especially during that hovercraft chase. And you've got the noisy soundtrack in the back, and it's just like one or the other. Pick one, you know. Don't need both. It's just too busy for me. I'd love a, I'd love a jazz score for a James Bond film. Um, <laughs> that'd be great, a John Barrios jazz score. That'd be amazing. Yeah, well, not, well, just, just kind of really kind of staccato kind of, um, like the the sixties kind of Elmer Bernstein and things like that, or <laughs> just like some swing kind of mad bebop kind of things that would be really kind of hard edged, along with the, uh, well, obviously it'd have to be a certain. I think it would probably fit Daniel Craig, perhaps, but uh, I think that would be something quite interesting. Like the, along the lines of um, the school for Catch Me If You Can, but something like that, but for a Bond film, maybe that kind of like jazz swing infused. Uh, maybe, maybe maybe something a bit less, um, how shall I say, enthusiastic. Because, um, I, I, I mean, I love Catch Me If You Can, but it's, it's there's a lot of kind of, it's, it's almost whimsical. Yeah. Um, whereas something kind of a bit more kind of like where you have the, the usual kind of Charlie Parker, Miles Davis kind of thing, um, where it's a bit more the blues. And, and if you have if you have a, a kind of downbeat James Bond kind of thing with with the blues, I think that would be quite a special thing. Sure. OK, so if the series got rebooted, you could almost argue David Arnold did as well, because <laughs> next time yeah. out we've got something very different. Casino Royale. Absolutely. A four-year gap, a reinvented series, and, and a very different soundtrack. Probably my favourite score of this this era, uh, full stop. Before we go into the score itself, uh, the Chris Cornell song certainly sets a theme. Uh, here it is, You Know My Name by Chris Cornell.
so I thought I'd, I, when I heard that song, I really liked it straight away. But I, I'm kind of thinking, how are they going to use that in the score? And they ended up using it really well. I love it. It's one of my favourites. I just love, love, love it. It was a grower, um, but no, it just grew on me, and I just love it. Anyway, Charlie, what do you reckon? Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. The first, like, like Dave said, the first time I heard it, I just loved it immediately. Um, and uh, and then what, when what, they used what about it, did you love it? Like, what what's the thing that you really drew t- to you about? when you first heard it i don't know just it instantly just i just instantly felt that it was so good and there was so much energy in it compared to the previous bond songs i mean especially coming after die never die Chris, I, I, w- I could refer you to some of your show notes. So be careful, <laughs> be careful, because you did write "Die Another Die" on one of them. And and the garbage song, which is a bit kind of languid, and to have something that's also this different as well, the rock element. I mean, I've I've always been a bit of a kind of grunge fan anyway, so I was a big fan of Sound, of Soundgarden. Well, we're that age, Charlie. Well, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Don't mind me. Um, but uh, so yeah, and, and the kind of rock element that's never really been there, apart from maybe little bits of License to Kill, um, and it's been always just kind of um, uncharted territory for Bond. So it was really interesting to hear that sound, and also a kind of a male vocalist like that as well. I, yeah, it was a real statement of intent for me as to what the film was going to be. But like I say, one of my big concerns was, well, how are they going to do this in the score? And the first bit of the film where you really hear it is as we focus on the train where he meets Vesper. It's a track called I'm the Money. I'll just play a little bit of that now. I, I, I definitely remember like parts of like the chase in the airport as well. I mentioned it, but I, I definitely remember hearing that. Yeah. Ah, yes, da, you da, did. Yeah. Yes. Da, 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 da. Yeah. That's used quite frequently. And uh, it's it's also in African Rundown as well with the uh, the chase sequence, the parkour guy. Ah, okay, let's just play a little bit of that then. This is African Rundown. So yeah, um, so th- those are sort of how they're using the theme, but but also it's it's quite a romantic score. Uh, but both Bond girls have really nice themes, I think, Solange and Vesper. Absolutely, I th- I think th- this was the score for me where Arnold kind of started to go beyond uh, Barry, and the uh, the the City of Lovers stuff, the Venice stuff, 
is is certainly a throwback to kind of Barry, and it sounds a bit like his love theme for um, the nineteen seventy six King Kong. Did you say um, City of Lovers? Yeah, yeah. Let's play a little bit of that because it does stand out. This is the bit where on the, they're on the boat heading into Venice. Uh, we'll just play a little bit of that. Before we go any further, I did mention both both Bond girls, both themes for the Bond girls. I think it's worth playing Vespa's theme because it, it does play very similar to that. It's a it's a very tender piece of music. Let's just hear Vespa. So the, the kind of the more romantic uh, aspects with Vespa certainly are quite barryish, but the action music uh, certainly isn't, mm-hmm. and uh, is is very much Arnold's stamp on that. And the like, yeah, the the African rundown sequence and Miami International with the, with the plane sequence is just really good, intense action music. And also the way um, you know my name kind of he has that as a secondary theme for bond with the way he treats the bond theme itself in the little kind of teases yeah absolutely i i think it's a wonderful score i really really like almost all of this yeah it's it's uh, arnold's like best score in my opinion uh particularly for the bond bond series it it it, it, it stands out it, it's kind of like a nice it's, it's just really sort of classy but really kind of um what what's the word? I want to say modernized, but it's really co- contemporary, uh, but classic at the same time. I'm really kind of mature. Uh, you know, it it takes the 
it, it takes its subject seriously where with Brosnan it was a little bit fast and loose because it suit the kind of like the fun kind of like fast paced tone of what the Brosnan films were but we hit this time it's like no this is fucking we're going proper serious here everything about this has to be fucking spot on and yeah I, 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 I think it's faultless yeah, I can't help but agree with all of you. Really, it's kind of, it combines the sort of the classic elements of the score with kind of more like mature, um, contemporary kind of um, sounds as well. It's just perfect, I think. Yeah, just 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 talking about it makes me want to watch the film. Yeah, definitely. Okay, bear with us, folks, while we watch Casino Royale. <laughs> Two and a half hours later. Yeah. Good, that wasn't it. Amazing movie. <laughs> yeah, but it's a bit like where um, in Father Ted, where they watch the Poseidon adventure to see if it will help them with like <laughs> with uh, Dougal's milk float, and at the end it doesn't. <laughs> and they speed, just in, in speed free. Okay, so moving on from that, uh, David Arnold's final score for the Bond films today, anyway. Uh, two years later, Quantum of Solace. Um, now he didn't write the theme tune to this song he actually wrote a song called No Good About Goodbye with um, Shirley Bassey did he not? Yes Let's play a little bit of that Where is the solace that I crave Will it still haunt me to my grave Too broken to forgive to pay to relive now There may be other arms to hold They'll only keep me from the cold There'll always be a space A fact I have to face now Now, I play that because Chris has always disagreed. He thinks that's a really averagey song. I don't speak for himself on it, but... Yeah. I think it would have been better than the actual, think, the actual I think, theme. I just think the lyrics are perfect. I, th- I think it's a good song, but I think it's just going backwards. Right. And I don't think it's suitable for the David Arnold, uh, for the Daniel Craig era. And I'm going to lose a lot of respect from probably everyone out there now. When I say I really, really like uh, Another Way to Die. Well, let's play a little bit of that then. Um, I have to admit, I don't like this and never have. But uh, here we go. Another way to die.
Now, I first heard the the instrumental for that, if you like, over a Coke Zero advert about a month before <laughs> yeah, it came out. I, I think we all did, yeah. And yeah, I, and I, thought, I, I think thought, I remember that as well. And uh, the Coke Zero advert was better than the title sequence. <laughs> so I just thought, I thought, oh, well, that could be quite promising. I, I didn't really like it. The score for me, the thing I do like about it is it's kind of, it is a bit more location specific in a couple of places mm. so for example this is bond in haiti or haiti i never know how to pronounce that but uh, this is as he arrives in haiti So I, th- I think that's a very good example of how, how Arnold is tailoring his approach. But not much of this score other than that sticks out to me. I think I like it for that because this is probably the most David Arnold score of them all because he is very, very... It's like the film, really. It's, it's very, very focused on uh, the, uh, the action sequences. Um, and also because there's no love story there because um, Camille and James are platonic only and because they're both on the same sort of um, road journey or whatever um, because of what's happened in their previous lives and um, as an aside I really like the film and I I think um, it gets a lot of unfair criticism Um, but um, and we use so Charlie, think, by the way. Excellent. So I think I think it's it's this it's it's still got some really nice themes, um, but um, the action is really good and really focused, and it's really intense as well. Um, so it's it's a really interesting listen, and I can it's probably not as easy a listen as Casino Royale or something like that because it's so much more intimate. Like the film, it's this, it feels like it's gone so much smaller. Uh, are there any tracks in particular you want you'd like us to 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 point out, Charlie, or any parts of the film that we can uh, spit? Uh, like we say, we're not, it's not really standing out. But are there any any parts of the score that you you think um, do stand out? Yeah, there's the there's the opening chase. Would that be the palio? Yeah, no, the 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 time to get out. Okay, let's play um, a little bit the- of that then.
Yeah, I, I do remember that, actually. I do remember that from the score. Certainly the early parts of the score stand out a bit more. Mm, and the, the DC-3, the, the chase. DC-3, okay. And we'll yeah. play just a little bit of that right now. Um, and one thing I need to point out as well is uh, the alternate alternate song by Adam and Joe. I put it on the end of the review. If you, if you go back and yeah. listen to our Quantum of Solace review and don't switch <laughs> off when Becca says goodbye. He, he's got um, drug gears and great big man tits. Yes. <laughs> uh, to be honest. It's hysterical. For the sake of it, I'm just going to put it on again. This is yeah. the Adam and Joe song. If you um, go onto YouTube, certainly if you're not from this country, though even if you are, you may not have uh, heard of them or, or listened to this. They Adam and Joe had several series of a TV show, largely in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, but they had a podcast. Well, it was a radio show, I think. On might have been on Six Music. Mm. Um, and they, they put it out as a podcast, and they had Star Wars. So they would have a topic, and they'd each go off and write a song about it. Uh, the, the, I seem to remember the Joe, uh, the Adam one for Antiques Roadshow, really, really <laughs> sticking out in my mind. And they went off and wrote one for Quantum of Solace each. Uh, the Adam one is funny, but the Joe Cornish one is even funnier. And here it yeah. is. He's got a gun, great big man tits He's got jug ears and tiny trunks Dame Judy Dench is furious with him He's gone completely out to lunch The quantum of the solace, quantum of solace. I don't know what that means What does it mean? He's acting flashbacks in black Parkour. The 
thingy of what something of Boris. I forgot what it's called. Is that what it was? Sometimes I wish Roger Moore would come back with an underwater car or some kind of jetpack or a hover gondola and a Union Jack. Forget it, mate. It's not the Yankees. He'd rather kick you in the face. We've got a new bond. I love it. I love it. It's worth watching on YouTube because it's got visuals cut to it as well, and it's just <laughs> funny. And it's it's probably worth noting as well that he now is directing and writing films. I mean, he was he co-wrote some of Ant Man, and he directed Attack the Block and things like that. And Tintin, he worked on. Yeah, he's yeah. really carving himself his career as a director now, isn't he? I mean, Adam Boxton uh, yeah. as well. You know, he does podcast, radio shows. He's he's making movies as well. Yeah. Um, and consider, I remember following them from Takeover TV in the beginning, uh, oh, where yes. they, they put stupid voices to Star Wars figures. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like um, what, oh, the same thing with, oh, who is it? Is it Robot Chicken? Um, yeah. It's yeah, kind of do, kind doing of it before they were doing yeah. it, so. Yeah. And um, what was the other one? Um, oh, God, Striptease as well. I did like, their own um, parody versions of it. Yeah, so. they, yeah and they did um, Seven with the Seven Dwarves. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear, yeah. I remember that. Oh dear. Um, and I, th- I think this is the classy way to say goodbye to David Arnold at the end of his <laughs> contribution to the series. Also, yeah, if you can find it, um, I'd like to include a little bit of um, a great track which is on the end credits for Quantum of Solace um, called Crawl End Crawl. It's by a group called Fortet. So let's play a clip. Uh, that's the end of uh, David Arnold's contribution to the series, as I say, to date. Um, William, uh, who is Will I Am Welch, uh, at Will I Am Welch on uh, Twitter, he asks, how important is David Arnold to the Bond franchise? Is he the next best to John Barry? He went on and asked a second question after that, and, and the general theme of that question was continuity. Is it important for people to have several stabs at it? But I think we can weave it into our answer to this. So David Arnold in relation to Barry and his importance to the Bond franchise? Chris? Uh, I think he is, but even if it might... Well, I, I think he is just purely on the basis of 
Senorial, but even if you are not necessarily a fan, he is he kind of is by default because he's the one who's who's had the most like consistent period of time apart from Barry. You know, everyone else has kind of like just had like one stab of it and then that's it. Barry took over for like another one or two and then someone else took over. David Arnold's actually stayed for about five or six films, so it's but it's you know it's five, isn't it? Yeah, he stayed for five films. So he had like a, a solid period of time where he contributed, and he also he he did give the score, which kind of like reinvented that. Well, I say reinvented, you know, it it reset the franchise almost. So yeah, it was an important score to do, and he nailed it. So uh, I say yes, he's second next to Barry so far. Becca, uh, in a word, yes. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's vital to the continuation of the Bond franchise as well. I mean, you kind of need, you know, decent directors, decent actors. And you, the score is the most important part as well. And I think with um, David Arnold, he literally takes those elements that we all know and love from John Barry and kind of brings them bang up to date. And I think that's that's why he is integral to, to Bond and also the reboot of the Bond. So it's kind of, it's it's really telling that obviously he was he was kept on, you know, with the reboot um, in uh, with Casino Royale. They didn't, you know, go to a new, a new composer, so... But yeah, no, he's supremely important. Charlie? Important is such a loaded word. Um, yeah. When I think of John Barry, I think of imagining the films that he did and thinking, can I imagine those films without his scores or with a different score? Yeah. Um, with John Barry there's no question that every one of his scores um, that you can uh, not really imagine any other score attached to it Um, with David Arnold's music and those films whether it's a good thing or not I can't imagine all of them and I think also because Barry had that original run with Goldfinger and Thunderball and From Russia with Love uh, and You're Live Twice. Um, he got good films to score. Um, <clears throat> and with David Arnold, it's really arguable that he only had a couple of good films that he was able to score. One of which is um, Casino Royale. And I think with that one, that does kind of underline an importance there. But I would put Michael Kamen on the same level as importance there because of what he did with License to Kill and making that such a standout in the uh, in the in the Bond series. Um, I think there is a level that, of importance that has to be historically aligned just simply because of all the films he did. He did, um, but. I don't think his importance is anywhere near Barry's. And I think to put the two next to each other is a bit of a false equivalency. For me, I think, again, when Charlie said important is a loaded term, he, I thought he was going exactly where I, I thought. How important is he to the Bond series? Well, if you mean now, not at all. He, he left the series and the two that followed were the highest grossing. Uh, the first one without him is adjust, unadjusted, sorry, unadjusted and adjusted, the highest grossing, at the most paid admissions worldwide of any Bond film. Um, 
he is seen as a bit of a the best parts of his scores tend to be very Barry-esque he does the romantic stuff very well you know I've I've said it a lot about different scores but I I listen to Vesper's theme and, and things like that and I'm hearing kind of what Barry would have been like around the time of Moonraker in Somewhere in Time and I think he is the second most um, prolific Bond scorer, so he's written himself into the history. But very little of his music's iconic in the same way as Majesty's is, and You Only Live Twice, and some of the music that, that Barry came out with. So I think what he was was a, was a decent analogue. He was important because the score that preceded him was shockingly bad, as we talked about earlier. And we hadn't had a traditional, traditional Bond theme for a few years by the time he came along. So I think it was important that somebody with that sort of voice made a contribution. But I, I think in, in Bond history, and the le- if he does, certainly if he doesn't do any more, I think certainly his, his contribution will almost diminish over time because it's going to be a smaller and smaller percentage of what's there. And like Charlie said, with the exception of one film, maybe, maybe two, his films aren't that good. That's not his fault, but... He wasn't scoring classics. I think it's telling as well is that his most iconic contribution is an arrangement of the James Bond theme, which is obviously is not his theme, and uh, which is the um, the names Bond and James Bond, which uh, ironically will come up in the the next film we talk about, um, and that's kind of almost his legacy. With this is. A really slamming, really good, but very traditional um, arrangement of the James Bond theme. And I'm going to say something slightly controversial here, where I look at the James Bond series and I kind of wish that it had overall um, gone less for what we were talking about earlier with continuity and more for actual ambition and suitability to the picture. And because of how people feel, I don't think... While John Barry is incredibly important to the series, I'll underline that now, so I don't want people to think the wrong thing, and his importance to James Bond as a character is absolutely underlined. However, I don't think that especially with the nature of James Bond and the evolution of James Bond as a character, that his importance to Bond is the same as something like John Williams' importance to Star Wars. No, but you could say that he like took the baton and kept it running for, you know... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'd say the but, same. But, I mean, like, but, but, arguably, you know, John Barry is... Is you know is Bond and see with John Williams you know is Star Wars so. But what but what I mean is is, you I think you could replace the suite of Bond music, more easily than you could the suite of Star Wars music. Yeah, and what 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 this is a catalyst from, is seeing people that weren't happy with the scores well the score that we'll discuss very shortly, mm. and that what they want is they want Arnold back. They want now their cinematic me, comfort food. Yeah, and that yeah. to me, that says they don't necessarily want Arnold back, they want John Barry back. Yeah. And yeah. if we're moving forward with James Bond and we want him to be a different thing than he was in, for instance, Spectre, 
um, where which was very much kind of tonally weird, where um, kind of mixing the Daniel Craig era with the Roger Moore era and going backwards and backwards and backwards. We don't want that to be encouraged. And by that, we don't want this to slip into this thing of, okay, he's going to do that. What are we going to do now? Okay, let's do this really classical Lush Strings version of the Bond theme and just continue with that. Yeah, absolutely. I take, I, I can understand where it comes from because, it, you know, a lot of people with the film we talk about next, they'll say well, it doesn't feel like a Bond film. Chris has said that, and it's an opinion I respect entirely. But where do you draw the line between just producing the same film every two years, just in different locations with slight variations? Exactly. Um, yeah. And this is where I, 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 with the I, agree, I, I agree with that. It's one of the things I've like thought about when I, you know, when I said it, and it, it, it just when I watch Skyfall, it, it, I, I don't. You know, can't move I don't, too far away. You can't yeah, move I, too far away from it. I don't know what it quite, quite what it is, but it just mm. isn't doesn't feel like a progressive bomb film it just feels like it just feels like a, a completely a, a different thing that's called bond you know but yeah i i've got mixed feelings on it i i i was certainly of the same mind as as what charlie just described until ironically enough charlie wrote an article on it and i, I don't often change my mind that easily but i read it and just saw i just saw that yeah i'm just clinging on to this cinematic comfort food do i want a film or do I want a nostalgia trip every three years? Um, and the, the element that, you know, and really there's room for a little bit of both, but the, the degree to which it's a nostalgia trip sh- should be a very, very small part of it. Because, you know, when you think about it, we look at Quantum of Solace and say, oh, you didn't even order a martini. Well, yeah, I take your point, but how fucking important to the quality of a film is that? Well, the film, was shit, other he, films, exactly. the film was shit, but he ordered a martini. So it's actually not bad. You know, it's like making my do. So, I tell you, you know, I take your point. Let's move on then. Let's move on to Skyfall. Um, Charlie, I'm just going to let you leave this one because I have to admit, Skyfall and Spectre, and we'll, we'll come on to Spectre in a while, are not scores I know perhaps as well. The one bit that does stick in my mind is uh, New Digs. Yeah, I, I, I really like Skyfall. Um, <clears throat> again, it's, it's different. It's, it's, again, it's not comfort food. Um and uh, it has a very different kind of, like like the film, really. There's a very kind of set idea in terms of tone. Um, and I think that certainly with uh, with Roger Deakins' cinematography as well, um, the, the same thing with Thomas Newman's music. Uh, I mean, Thomas Newman is already an established genius with, with the kind of scores he's done for Hollywood. Um so for him to come onto a James Bond film as well, it had to be different. And it really was different. But I think his action music was really good. And I love that just the very, very close opening of the film where you see the, the shadow on um, Daniel Gray's eyes and there's the kind of the strains of the kind of the staccato of the Bond theme structure, but not really the music. Um, which I think is is really great. Those little kind of touches, and I think that's that's the thing as well. He, he is he doesn't go mental with the Bond theme, and when it is the Bond theme, it's generally David Arnold's arrangement. Because there's the uh, the track Breadcrumbs, uh, where again talk about a nostalgia trip when he gets out the uh, uh, the DB5 
or is it the DB9? It's the DB5. The DB5. We, um, we've discussed it in exhaustive fucking. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and um, yeah, it does the the James Bond James Bond arrangement up to a certain point. Let's play um, a little bit. Um, we'll come back to the Adele song afterwards. But mm. talking about the score, let's just play a little bit from. In fact, let's play two bits because I've already mentioned New Digs. Very yeah. early in the, I, I say, not necessarily the best bit of music in the score. It's just simply a bit that springs to mind when Bond is being driven down to the new MI6 when they're underground. And, and he says, where are we going? And he says, New Digs. And this is the music that accompanies it. that back to what we were talking about earlier uh breadcrumbs this is the bit charlie's just referred to before that piece of music So yeah, that, I take what you mean. I certainly do remember that that big sting as as he opened the garage and and the music. Yeah, yeah, and um, also the uh, it's, there's a very nice kind of theme for uh, a very short kind of theme motif for for Judy Dench's M as well, and it's nice considering this was her her denouement that uh, that she actually had a uh, a little theme for that, and it was quite a, quite a nice kind of reflective theme that. Uh, maybe kind of clued you up a bit maybe until for what was going to happen um and there's just kind of the other bits like the the bit in um shanghai and the lovely bit in macau there's a bit in the bit in macau where he's taken in on the boat to the now i can hear both the skyfall theme and you know my name in that and i don't know Mm. if that's just because they're using the same notes uh i'm not sure which piece of music that is do you know the name of the track charlie uh i think it's it's uh komodo dragon because yeah, because it definitely uses the. It's the only place in the score that uses the Skyfall thing. Okay, let's uh, play a little bit of that. Because uh, talking about bits that stand out, this is actually one of them. So Komodo Dragon. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, that music does stand out. And I can hear Skyfall. And as I say, in a certain sort of mood, I can hear, I can hear you know my name in that. But it's probably just mm-hmm. the notes there, you know, it's, utilizing. It's 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 very possible. But uh, yeah, I, I just think it's it's a really a different score, and there's humour in it as well. Um, with the uh, um, Brave New World, with the uh, the scene in in the museum with Q. And okay. there's a lovely little humorous little smidgens of the Bond theme there. And that's really interesting. And it's, it's nice to hear some humor. Um, any other parts of the Skyfall score before we talk about Adele's theme that you'd like to, to play or talk about? Yeah, just the, the, the first, because um, the, there's the, uh, the bloody shot as well when they're uh, on, the, on the train. The bloody and shot. A, yeah. Take the bloody shot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before I play this, um, I don't actually remember what it sounds like, but I'm sure I will as soon as I put this in. This is a little bit of the bloody shot. So yeah, that's the uh, that's the Skyfall score. What do what do our, what do Becca and Chris make of it generally? Um, I I said last week, and I was actually quite I will say quite surprised, but I was really on the on the last we watched, I had of it for the review. Uh, I was generally yeah, I I I was really generally surprised, and I really had nothing bad to say about it. I was really impressed by the score. I thought it was different. I thought it it, it just it just sounded like a really good. Uh, score for not not just for a bomb film, but just for a film in general. It just it just it just kept moving. Had like lots of different interesting choices. Uh, it was just it just sounded great. Yeah, I have to agree with Chris there definitely. I mean, I like Thomas Newman as a composer um, of the scores he's done for previous films. I I can't fault it really. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I haven't got really you know anything negative to say about it. I think there's some really good elements in there. It blends in elements of of the main theme um, and also the score itself but I just my problem is like when we get to talk to Spectre about the kind of the rep- you know there's been a lot of criticism surrounding like the repetition of it and I I, I tend to disagree a little bit so we'll, we'll, come back we'll to discuss that, that in a moment we have, we have a specific question on that Becca yeah we do um, so. um, but before we come off the song certainly there's been a, a little bit less in the last couple of films of sort of echoing the, the, the theme tune in the in the score which is probably why we're not naturally linking the two quite as well at the moment this is adele's theme for skyfall which i have to say i love now in particularly in context with that that credit sequence
This is the end Hold your breath and count to ten Feel the earth move and then Hear my heart burst again For this is the end I've drowned and dreamt this moment So What do we make of the Skyfall song? Brilliant. I love it. It's great. I like it. Yeah. Again, the the credit sequence is great. And it's it's just a fantastic song. It's got a really nice... The the way it uses the James Bond theme in its melody um, and then the the belting from Adele. um, She's amazing. (laughs) and, uh, And yeah, and she's got such a great voice as well. I have another fun fact. Do you? This is what I call music. Come on, Carl, chat back. That's fun, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I can't resist. <laughs> okay, well, that's quite a build-up to what's probably quite a simple little fact. <laughs> Becca gets five facts to one of these teams. Charlie's getting one per fact. Bring <laughs> yourself lucky, Charlie. What's your party fact. Okay, the, uh, the the Skyfall score was after the Spy Who Loved Me, the next James Bond film to be nominated for an Oscar for the score. Oh, I didn't know that. How about that? And that really actually kicked off quite a bit um, to a lot of uh, Bond score fans who weren't a fan of the score. And Fella saw that as an insult to John Barry, um, 
There's a... I'm sure John Barry doesn't mind. Especially now. Especially now, I don't think he's... That's what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's rolling his grave. Uh, message boards on the internet for film scores uh, were not particularly complimentary. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Thomas Newman is the absolute... Um, always the bridesmaid never the bride when it comes to oscars he always gets nominated um for his music and there's not as of yet why is it, is it like oscar roger deakin a bit like roger deakin yeah, yeah, yeah. Abs- exactly, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah and i mean like this year he had um just gone he had the bridge of spy score which was a lovely lovely score um that just happened to come against in the same year that we had a new ennio morricone and a new john williams score um, which ironically he had taken the place off because John Williams was too busy doing Star Wars mm. to be able to do the new Steven Spielberg film, yeah, which I was do, British I Spies. That. I haven't said that I loved the Leo Morricone score for uh, Hateful Eight, but anyway. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah all of those are fantastic. Okay. It, was, it was just one theme, though, really, to be fair. Yeah, but what a theme. Yeah. It's Leo Morricone, come on. No, no, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, but I don't, I was just saying in context of the actual score, it was just like, it's just one bit. Okay. But yeah, I, I, about, I, I like Dave says. It, what as, as we're talking about Thomas Newman and we're talking about Skyfall and moving on, uh, Tom Barwick asks a second question, uh, again, at Tommy Come Lately on Twitter. Why do you think, I don't know if you're going to agree with this, but here we go, this is the exact wording of the question, this is directly to Charlie, I don't think the three of us should really answer this. Why do you think Thomas Newman repeated cues from Skyfall Inspector? Was he just being lazy? I don't think it's ever a question of it being lazy. Um, I don't know exactly. Um, sadly, I've never met or exchanged uh, emails or telephone calls with Thomas Newman. Um, but to be honest, when that usually happens, it's either decided beforehand by the... Uh, um, by the composer and the director and producers, or um, it's done kind of at the last minute. Um, whether or not, because I don't really remember much of the music in Spectre, to be honest with you, because I was too busy gawping open mouthed how terrible it was as a film. You just hated the film, um, and that was that. Yeah, but um, so I don't know how much of it is repeated music. And how I much of it thought, is just music from, taken from Skyfall itself? Where I thought I was hearing the same thing. Now, mm. Tom, you might well be right. Maybe there are exact cues you could point out. But I went listening through the soundtracks today, which isn't the entire score. It never is, so that's fair enough. But, for example, I listened to a track called Vauxhall Bridge because I thought that was the bit that was the same as New Digs on the previous one. It's not. It's kind of a bit similar, but it's different. Um, there's only two bits I'd actually like to play that stood out for me before we get on to the Sam Smith song. Uh, I'm going to play that bit of Vauxhall Bridge because it does evoke the Skyforce score, but it's not the same. So here's that bit.
And the other bit I'd like to play is as we were watch as we all watched the film because we were all watching it at the same time on first screening. Um, one of the bits that stood out for me because it was so percussive was the snowplane sequence. And there is a track on the soundtrack called Snowplane. I'm just going to play a little bit of that. from that literally nothing stands out to me yeah i think with sometimes and and this this certainly happens and i'm not saying this is tom thinking this or isn't i don't know but people sometimes um mistake uh stylistic similarities for repeating i mean a lot of people say the same thing about john williams um, and they say, oh, yeah, his stuff is all the same and that kind of thing. And it never is. It's just the fact that he has a very significantly um, distinctive style that he always writes in. Um, I mean, in terms of I don't know how many people out there know how a film's always created from kind of like when it's written to when it's on the uh on the on the attached to the film and i don't want to be patronizing but i'll just kind of quickly explain that it's very rare that they kind of come in script stage so once the film's in the editing stage they bring in the composer and then the producer the composer the music editor and the director and anyone else sits down and watches the film and makes notes about where they want the score to go in the film so then from there on in the composer takes those notes goes back and writes the score and then play usually plays his kind of sketches his ideas most most people play them on the piano or they mock up computer sketches a lot of the, a lot of the newer composers um mock up on the computer with the orchestra samples and things like that um to uh, to give an idea of what the actual full score will sound like instead of someone like john williams who still does writes with paper and pencil and will play the themes on the piano um and then they go into they make whatever changes they need to go and then they go into record and then they put that to the picture and certainly things there are so many things that change in that moment between recording the score and the final film has come out comes out and especially there's so many different occasions where there's been changes in editing um of the films i mean again john williams is a good example because there's a few of his ones where both positively and negatively, the films have been re-edited, certainly 
usually in the last kind of the final act of the film because that's always the main the most important one and sometimes the hardest one with the first star wars prequel the phantom menace um there was a point where steven spielberg and ron howard were showing the film or the, the current edit of the film by george lucas and they said this should be changed and this should be changed so they made all these changes but they didn't have time to uh um to re-record the music so they just kind of edit it to hell and if you watch the film well throughout the film but certainly in that last kind of half that last act the score is all over the place and is just completely almost incoherent at times whereas when steven spielberg made et he edited the film and then john williams wrote the music and then he looked at the final section of the music from when um they steal E.T. in the ambulance when they find that he's alive to the end of the film. John Williams wrote that 15-minute sequence, which is three cues together. Um, and Steven Spielberg heard that, went back and re-edited that final section to the music, to hit the beats of the music. So, for example, when the, uh, when the bikes take off and uh, you hear the, the kind of E.T. theme kind of go like that. Uh, rising up heroically and it was all kind of edited to that um so there's so much different variables in this and especially calling someone like thomas newman lazy um is a bit maybe naive he phrased it as a question to be fair oh yeah no i I answer that so maybe that's not something to concentrate on and i apologize tom for kind of suggesting that there's any kind of but it's just kind of being aware of how the entire process works and how much is down to the composer and how much is down to the producers and to the uh to the director if you want to see just another example if you want to see sort of some extras on the making of a film where this becomes a big issue. Uh, the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings, when you get to uh, Return of the King, uh, the amount of music Howard Shaw has to write per day is quite phenomenal by then, yeah. and everyone is in a blind panic. I mean, I, um, I, I just think about like, what generally what film composers amount of music they have to write. I mean, they're not the same as like writers or directors where it's like one per year at the very most. They they do probably churn out probably at least like two or three piece like not just like piece of music but whole entire score soundtracks like mm. pretty much albums per year you know and you say how how I, I, I boggles my mind how they can manage to even do that you know that that's so, the thing and and certainly there are some. There's a lot of like the old guard of the composers and the new guard, and, and some of the older ones will write all the different orchestrations for all the different instruments themselves, whereas some some other composers will then kind of write the basic things and then hand it off to orchestrators who will just kind of embellish it for the uh, for the different parts. But another example is, is the film Chinatown, which obviously is recognised as a masterpiece, certainly for Jerry Goldsmith's score. Now, Jerry Goldsmith wrote that, wrote and could recorded that score in around two weeks um, because originally it had a score by a different composer called Philip Lambre. And by the time he recorded it and they put it to picture and they realised it didn't work at all, they kind of panicked, but they didn't have, they had so much, so little time that they, Jerry Goldsmith wrote the score 
and in a, and really recorded it in a couple of weeks. It went on, and now it's considered one of the greatest schools of all time. It's sometimes like the, the works of art tend to be the ones that just kind of just end up just knocking out, just out of like in a rush, or just come completely out of nowhere, and it turns out to be one of the best works you ever did. Um, kind of similar it, to what happened to the, the Jaws as well. Because I remember that kind of I remember reading something about the, the score to, to Jaws was very was very different. And then they're like, oh no, that didn't work. And so they just came up with something very, very simple, like no, 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 and you know, well, the simplest deal. Yeah, well, I, I, I heard that was basically down to the fact that uh, the, the shark they didn't really yeah. have the, yeah, the shark no. didn't work actually. So basically, they had to rely on Williams to create the effect of to the shark. Create that tension. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, yeah. That, that, that was happened. But what actually happened was Steven Spielberg originally had a very different idea for what the music should be, oh, and right, had actually okay. got some a couple of previous scores of John Williams's that were more kind of avant-garde. And had put them to the picture for the what they call the temp track, and John Williams came in and said, "No, no, no, I'm not going to do it like that way. I'm going to do it much more traditional because he saw the film as kind of like a very more kind of like a like a pirate film almost with a bit of tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. especially with all the boating stuff at the end of the film. So he he just he kind of went against Spielberg's wishes and said, "I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this my way," and that ended up being what it's like. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay, so I hope that answers your question, Tom. I, I, you know, I don't think any of us think you're, you're particularly having a go at anyone there, but no. I think, firstly, we, we're we're not quite sure the degree of repetition there actually is. And we've played a couple of examples of music that, in my head, away from the scores, I thought were the same and weren't. Uh, but even if even if you're right, we don't know is the honest answer. If, uh, if I were to throw my two cents in there, I I I think if there is any any sort of repetition. It's probably due down to the fact that it's a continuation from Skyfall, so it's like it's a, it's the same kind of team almost from from Skyfall. It is. So I can imagine there's kind of like little echoes from that. It's a continuation of the story from the filmmaker's perspective. So I reckon there's probably shades of that. Um, and there's parts of it. I mean, I think it does enough to different in it anyway to kind of to qualify. There's enough like different sort of sections and there are, there are certain pieces that I actually like like the the scene at the bridge and the um and the, and the scene in like the the american that uh that when they find that hidden room uh which kind of uh like like, like very like kind of like a softer softer sort of theme that kind of drifts in and out i think kind of for me stands out in the film but um yeah i, I think it does enough different for me anyway Let's have a quick talk about the theme tune, and then uh, and then we'll move on to the last few questions before we we call it a night. Um, the Sam Smith song. Before we actually start talking about it, let's play a bit of it. I can guarantee this will get blocked on YouTube, so I don't know whether this will end up on YouTube as an episode at all. To be honest, we've played a lot more music tonight than we have in previous episodes. But anyway, the writing's on the wall by Sam Smith. Prepared for this 
with the benefit of hindsight think of this song I can I go first yeah I don't mind the song myself um, but I, I do not like the vocals okay Becca um, I think it's going to be up to me to defend it really isn't it um, I don't know you carry on <laughs> no just again kind of speaking as a Sam Smith fan um, I mean I know the vocals cut a lot of people off especially when he goes sort of the high pitched sort of section um, but I remember when he first released a clip from this film, I was thinking, oh, this is amazing. It sounds just like John Barry, you know, back to the good old days. Blah, blah, blah. And then when the rest of the song came out, people were like, what is this monstrosity? Um, and I, it's another one of those ones that's really lush vocals, lush strings, really brassy as well. Um, and, but the lyrics perfectly fit between the relationship between Bond and the Madeline. So for me, it's kind of, it has that extra layer of resonance there. Um, but I just, I, I love it. I love it. Charlie. When you asked that question earlier about is Die Another Day the worst James Bond thing? Oh, no. Charlie, say the, say so. The writings on the wall was out of my mind. Um, I'm still sticking with Madonna. You don't have to worry, Becca. Um, oh. <laughs> I, th- I think it's a pretty kind of poor song, to be honest with you, though. Um, it's a pretty kind of turgid, Barry-esque attempt and I think the yeah, the music itself, like Chris said, is not inoffensive, but the vocals um, just don't work for me at all. And it just doesn't feel like a James Bond theme in any way, shape or form. 
It's another chance for me to plug um, Q the Music version, just because it's sung by you know their their singer Kerry. And I think as much as I love Sam Smith, it would suit a female vocal a lot better. So if I can direct you in the direction of Q the Music, I'm I'm Becca. With that, I rest my case because that is exactly what what it is. It's like he's too whaley. He overdoes it too much. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I just he just sounds like a drowning cat. You know, Aww. and I, I just do not like those type of vocals. The song itself, actually, I'm kind of like, okay, I've got used to it. I don't mind it so much. You've got some love strings. Uh, the, the lyrics make sense in context of the film, even though the film doesn't make sense of that anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, but, like, uh, but, it, but, but what really ruins it is the vocal performance. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, like, bagging on Sam Smith. You know, fair enough, he's just not my taste, but, you know... It, it does just let the song down for me. It, it's the song together with the terribly animated octopus. Hentai octopus. And, <laughs> na- and na- naked Daniel Craig. The, the um, tentacle form. I, 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 actually, I don't see I, any, anything wrong with the shirtless Daniel Craig. What's going on here? I don't, I don't get it. Well, I think, I think it sounds a bit like a sort of 1990s chat line. For example... <laughs> Come on, Carl, chat back! <laughs> Um, the, uh, 50, 50, the, the, ra- 50. I, I sorry. the Radiohead song. <laughs> sorry? Oh. I didn't the Radiohead like. song they did that they turned down. Yeah. Oh, yeah that, that would have been, not, uh, would have been better. I think I you should play some of it. Okay. Um, Let's do it. Okay, here it is. The Radiohead version of, what was this song called? Was it? This movie's terrible. It, yeah, I think it's called Spectre, I think, as well. All right. I'll find it and I'll play it right now. Um, yeah, and uh, instantly, uh, Sam Smith doesn't sound so bad. The thing is, you've got to live with these things for a while. They don't go with the same rules as everything else. When the Sam Smith clip came out, I had a similar reaction to Skyfall when it first came out, the first clip. I thought, I don't like this. And then I thought, I really don't like this. And then as I heard the whole thing two or three times, I became kind of indifferent to it. And now I kind of like it. I, I'm not gonna. I wouldn't go wild defending it, but 
I kind of quite like it. But it does go with Daniel Kleinman's worst title sequence, in my opinion. All, oh. all that octopus <laughs> shit looks awful. It's excessive. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't dislike it. I, whether I should, I don't know, but I, I don't really dislike it. I would take it over one or two of the Brosnan uh, themes. Um, it's it's okay. But uh, let's move on to some questions before we, we go any further. We talked about... Um, sort of future composers last time Charlie was on, so we'll skip that. Um, Edgar, oh, I don't, hang on. I don't, pronouncing your surname, I don't know if it's Chaput, but I'm going to go with that. Edgar Chaput, at Double O Pop uh, on Twitter. Do you think future scores could ever go back to weaving instrumental versions of the theme songs again? I'll go first. Yes, of course. Why not? Becca? Yes, we'll say answer. Yeah, I don't, I don't suppose why not. Um I, I guess you you have to. I guess it's it's really good to include sort of a bit of the rough and the smooth as it were. So yeah, let's see why not. I never rule it. Yeah, I never rule it out. To be honest with you, mm. um, I mean, I mean, I, I think we all kind of like with respect that we all kind of like salivated uh, with the kind of riff on the on a Majesty's, you know. And so it wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> why, so, uh, that's, like, that's my biggest bugbear. It's like it was in the trailer. Why wasn't it in film? It's like what. Actually, with the way the loves, I don't dislike Spectre. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to our rankings. But with the way the love story was presented, it would have been a slap in the face to use Majesties on that. To be quite honest with you, yeah. so I'm really sure. glad they didn't. But it did raise an expectation that obviously wasn't met in the final score. Literally, it was like the build-up, and obviously now with, with the, the whatever film was going to follow Spectre, people are going to be expecting it to, you know, her to be killed off, Ella Tracy. So I think that's that's kind of good that like, it wasn't included in the final film. So. I think that she should just be killed off in between films. Um, I have no interest in seeing her again in a Bond film um, because the um, chemistry was um, the very antithesis of the word. In terms of integrating actual written themes uh, or, the, or the song themes in general, of course, yeah, that, that can happen in the future. Um, it depends on the, um, the, the composer. I mean, because sometimes composers can write scores but they can't always write songs um writing a song and writing a score is quite a different thing um so in in some in some ways um some of them certainly can't do it and there have been certainly composers in the past who have written brilliant scores but their songs have left a lot to be desired um but yeah again it just depends on the composer and also how in terms of when the composer is hired and when the uh, whoever's hired to sing the song, because um, if it's done fairly early, because I don't know when it was that uh, Adele was actually confirmed to uh, to be. She um, read the script quite early in the process, I believe. Oh, okay. But I might um, I might be wrong. Yeah, because con- considering there was only one tiny little bit of it in the in the yeah. uh in in the score but yeah it's, it's no reason why not i mean it, it would be really nice to see it and yeah um certainly continuity wise um <clears throat> and certainly when barry did it um integrating the song through uh instrumental is uh is very effective um so yeah, yeah there's, there's some, of... sometimes it completely um transcends the song itself i mean moonrake is an example of that yeah, yeah, and uh, 
Yeah, Nobody Does It Better as well. It's just amazing as an instrumental. And uh, A View to a Kill as well, the kind of little kind of fanfare bits and stuff in there mm. of the Duran Duran song. But really, um, the question needs to be um, posed to, uh, to Barb, Barbara Broccoli, and uh, we'll find from whatever they are going to do with the... Uh, when yeah. what's going to happen with the next Bond film and whether or not it would be Daniel Craig or it would be Tom Hiddleston or someone else and then perhaps whoever it will be um, will reflect the because uh, like I said like Chris made a good point about the Brosnan era about how it was all kind of winky and jokey really and the music because um, it was kind of got more whimsical by as the time went on and more self-referential and that really kind of fit whereas um, did, yeah. yeah and then and then you saw um uh and then and then um daniel craig came in and the music changed completely to fit his character and his interpretation of james bond along with the tone of the film same with skyfall um so it certainly depends on who the actor is going to be who and uh, who's going to direct the film from uh, for where they go on with the uh, with the score really? Cool. Thanks for your question, Edgar. Chris Malone at Malone Digital on uh, on Twitter. Should Bond themes or scores lead or follow musical trends? How much should the James Bond theme be used? Charlie. Um, I don't think they need to follow trends really. Um, I think that happened with with Tomorrow Never Dies um, and the whole drum and bass bit, and I think that wasn't a very good idea at all, and did, some of it didn't really work. Um, you could argue GoldenEye as well to some degree. Absolutely, with the whole kind of European um, electronics. Um, so I really, the only thing it really needs to uh, to look at is the tone of the film and the and how it works in terms of that. I mean, in um, I would, I would argue that for any film, though, really. I mean, like, oh, you know, yeah. you, you have to, like, pick the right score for that film. I mean, if the film's contemporary modern, then you have to find the score, whatever works for that. And, and you know, it'll be just, it'll work just as, it'll be a success. The, you know, regardless, you know, if it works, it works. If it, if it doesn't, then it's going to be hazardous to it. You know, whether it's, like, a modern sort of, up, you know, modern, like, contemporary soundtrack. It may not work if it doesn't suit the film. So, but if it's really sort of old, old school kind of like very traditional, you know, it it would work better, and the film would still be a hit. You know, so I I, I think it's completely depends on the film itself. Yeah, I mean, in, in regards to the James Bond theme, um, I think there's there's certainly a balance that can be struck. Um, I mean, certainly it is a kind of it's a little nostalgia trip in itself whenever you hear that theme. Um, and there's a certain conditioning um, attached to it where you kind of it's almost expected um, for him to do something cool and then you hear the theme or whatever and it's interesting that um, Thomas Newman and to a certain degree David Arnold in uh, Quantum of Solace um, kind of subverted that expectation um, and uh, but it, it I think it is kind of needed to, to a certain degree, but just not just everywhere. Um, you don't need Bond, like every single thing that Bond does to be uh, 
to be accompanied by that theme and uh, the more you hear something repeated like that the less kind of meaning it sometimes has yeah i don't i don't want to see like the bomb theme used a lot i think it, about three times is enough for me in an actual bomb film depending on where it is i mean if it's if it suits the right moment then i think that it's earned but no more than four times i think should be in the film. Mm. I would never like to see. I would never like to see a Bond film that doesn't have it at all. Oh, yeah, uh, be it the end credits or whatever. Um, but when I think back to some of my favourite scores in the series and the iconic bits of music from those films, it wasn't the Bond theme. Double uh, the Double O Seven theme in a number of the earliest films. Uh, the Majesty's theme. Um, I think I don't know what the track's called, but you only live twice. The, the scene in space at the start of the film. Uh, all of those things don't use the Bond themes. It's perfectly, it's perfectly possible to create what will become iconic pieces of music that fit totally with the the Bond suite, if you like, that aren't the James Bond theme. So I think how important is it to use it a lot? Use it by all means. Have it there somewhere. But I certainly don't follow the argument of oh, we were an hour and a half into the film before we heard it. it was so what? Uh, that doesn't bother me. In terms of should the uh, theme score, uh, should the scores lead or follow musical trends? For me, it, it's two things really. Um, practically speaking, follow the talent, follow the the directors and and who they bring in and what they're what they're trying to do with their film. And if if that's a a classic Bond film that does evoke Barry, then fine. If it's something like A License to Kill that does something in keeping but different, that's fine. As a general principle, ignore musical trends, frankly. It's not about... Uh, all you're doing is tying the film to the era in which you make it, and we're hearing that now with some of the Brosnan themes, that they, they are starting to, to date because of that. Um, Becca? Yeah, regarding the use of the James Bond theme, um, yeah, probably, I think, three or four times tops, but that's about it. Um, Tomorrow Never Dies was pretty much OTT, because um, it's in there pretty much all the time. But I reckon... Yeah, it should be kind of a, you should be able to hear it. But um yeah, I agree with you, Dave, in that you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't have a bond film where you don't hear the theme. That'd be like oh, sacrilege. Yeah. But um you should be able to hear it definitely, but I think probably no more times than three or four times, otherwise it's a bit OTT. And have it nicely tied in with the actual theme of the film as well. Okay, well that's that's uh, really all we've got to, to to do with the music now. We've got one final question, uh, which I'd like Charlie to answer last of the four of us. Um, and then we'll go on to talk about what's next for sort of Charlie with this show. Um, the last question is from Martin Wiley again. He asked one earlier on in the show at Martin Wiley, 1990 on Twitter, who introduced you to bond? How did you become a fan? I'll go first. I did talk about it in the intro episode. Uh, who introduced me to bond? Nobody specific. Uh, Christmas, 1984. We went as a family up to my uncle's house in the East Midlands. He lived up in workshop at the time. And, the Man with the Golden Gun was on ITV. I think it was Christmas Day, but it was one of the Christmas days, Boxing Day or whenever. Uh, it was up against Mary Poppins on the other side. Uh, my mother wanted to watch Mary Poppins because she doesn't like James Bond. I did because I was a kid and never heard of James Bond. Uh, the two men in the house insisted that we watch The Man with the Golden Gun. And that was me, which is ironic because I loathe Roger Moore as James Bond. As I think I've made pretty clear over the weeks and The Man with the Golden Gun isn't a favourite of mine, but it was my gateway film. And six months later, A View to a Kill was my first cinematic James Bond. I've been a fan ever since. Becca? 
I think probably my dad, <laughs> of all people. Um, yeah, I, can't, I seem to remember kind of seeing, I think it must have been either, I can't remember if it was A Spy You Love Me or Vutica, one of those films, Bank Holiday Monday, you know, as you do. Um, and then kind of discovering the films. And then from there, kind of discovering the Inflaming novels and the continuation novels and like pestering my grandparents whenever they went to a car boot sale. Okay, if you see any, you know, second-hand Inflaming books, could you buy them for me, please? So... <laughs> Eighteen copies um, of Casino Royale. <laughs> like, yeah, I've got quite a few. I've got like, the reprints, you know. I've got the, I've got a nice sort of pan edition and one that's a bit more frayed around the edges. Um, but yeah, I'm still on the hunt now. So, um, but yeah, and then I think I probably might have been too. I suppose I might have been a bit too young when Golden I came out, but I seem to remember kind of quite fervently, you know, because someone never dies when they came out of the cinema. So yeah, I've got my dad to thank for James Bond. So thanks, Dad. Uh, I'm going to be annoyingly vague. Um, I, I mentioned it on the intro podcast, I think, but I've got no real strong uh, memory of when I first was introduced to Bond. All I remember is that I always watched it at a very young age. So my memory of it is I've always grew up watching it. And I think all I can say it, it was always my gateway into actual film itself because ever since I was like as young as I can remember I was I liked watching James Bond and I liked watching the films and the earliest memory I can possibly think of was possibly even Pure Eyes Only or the uh, Never Say Never Again but the but but, but generally as a whole I, I just loved watching Bond films and it was my gateway to films in itself uh, in kind of like the time with what Rebecca said, it was probably partly maybe responsible for my dad. I think my dad likes Bond films, so it's probably like, oh, Bond films, on, we'll watch that. And I obviously watched it. And for, it most stuck, bo- and it for most stuck. boys, it is their dad. It wasn't in my case, funnily enough. No, yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense it may, it, logically, but yeah, I mean, but then again, I'm, that's me guessing anyway. But yeah, I've got no solid memory of. Um, I've been being introduced to Bond other than the fact that I watched it from a very young age so it was literally prominent in my life from as far as I can remember it'd be nice to hear if, like, if some people say if, if they were like oh it was my mum or my auntie or something that'd be interesting be a bit different to, to the usual so it does definitely be people's dads or granddads or whatever so I don't know from Charlie yeah he might have been like introduced by like a magical nanny who flew like Mary Bobbins wow <laughs> <laughs> meld the stories together Charlie um, as much as I'd like to have Julian Andrews as my nanny, um, really the person responsible for uh, introducing me to James Bond was ITV. Um, and, oh yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a real answer. That's a real was, answer. <laughs> I think it was Thunderball um, that uh, that was the first one I saw on on ITV, and I very specifically remember the kind of the big battle at the end, um, and then from then on. Um, it was uh, Corgi and their little James Bond cars, and my cousin gave me the Spy Who Loved Me Lotus Esprit with the little button that flips out and turns it into a submarine. Um, and because of my interest in stuff like that, along with like Knight Rider and things like that, and all things that were Airwolf obsessed with vehicles, um, that got me watching James Bond actually properly. And um, in terms of the uh, the music. Um, my dad had a uh, album, an LP in his collection, um, from which was 
the Persuaders TV show with Roger Moore and Tony Curtis. And it also had um, From Russia with Love and Goldfinger and Thunderball and things like that. So I listened to that quite a lot, and that really kind of got me into some of the music, along with the uh, the, the, the kind of Star Wars music I already had that really got me into film music. Um, and it went on from there. I didn't. I think, to be honest with you, um, and this is pretty shocking, is Dying of the Day, I think, was the first James Bond film I actually saw in the cinema. Um, all Given of the ones, your age, that is shocking. <laughs> yeah, all, all of the ones after. I think I might have... My mum might be taking me to see The Living Daylights um, around that time they came out. But uh, other, other than that, I never. I always kind of waited until they came out on video um, <clears throat> instead of, uh, or DVD as it, as it eventually became. Um, why, why was that? Was it just because you... I don't, like, I what, don't what, know. Was it the fact that because you grew up watching Bond on the TV, it's like seeing the cinema was just a little bit wrong? <laughs> it, maybe it almost was, yeah. It's just kind of like, oh, I might as well just, just wait for it to come out. Um, which is funny, as, as I spent so much of my youth at the cinema anyway, um, it's just for some for some reason, um, Bond films never... Uh, it was always just kind of like video, really. Yeah. I, I, I get that. I mean, I, I remember, like, uh, back in the days where, before you had all this on-demand stuff, but, like, I remember, like, kind of, oh, Moonmakers moon, moon on, like, and I'm, I'm still stuck in town with Mum, going, like, oh, I want to get home, I want to, I want to watch Moonmaker. <laughs> you get you get, you get home, and it's like, and, 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 you're half, and you're halfway through it, and it's like, oh, we, we, watch, it, we watch it anyway. You know, but it's like, yeah, but before then, where, like, you can, like, you Sometimes you have to kind of like really try and seek it out to actually see the whole film. Sometimes, sometimes like because I, I, there was a period of time where I don't think I actually remember watching the beginning of Moonraker at all. So, uh, sorry, just take me back to memories. Sorry. <laughs> I really want to watch Moonraker. <laughs> Martin Martin Wiley, who asked the question, is a very very big James Bond fan. Um, he often tags us in photos when it's a, a Bond alumni birthday or, or somebody or bond alumnus's birthday uh, anything like that so uh, let us know martin how you know through twitter or whatever where did you become such a big fan because uh, I, I know you're certainly probably a bigger fan than any of us actually actually let's extend that to any all the listeners anyone yeah, yeah any, any, anyone anyone who's like you uh listen to us or follow yeah. us on twitter just... yeah we'd like to know how did you become a fan and yeah. who got you into bond yeah. and how did you become a fan of the series? Absolutely, because certainly in my case, I mean, without retelling my story, uh, if you think about it, my first film at the cinema was Superman 2, and I was four, and I didn't get to James Bond for another four and a half years. So I was relatively late, given my, my cinema going, but yeah. Uh, but in terms of cinema going, Charlie, uh, you will have a mission coming up where you have to go to the cinema, otherwise you won't be able to participate. You, yes. are, jo- you are joining us very shortly, I believe. I I will be, yeah, and uh, I'm greatly looking forward to it. And I'm actually quite looking forward to the film for some strange reason as well. So uh... It's strange, (laughs) given the last one. Charlie is going to be a permanent guest on the Star Trek series, which is at the time of recording this about six weeks away, um, because we've got two more weeks of Bond, and then we've got four weeks of Indiana Jones, or four episodes of Indiana Jones. And then we go straight on to uh, an intro episode, so Charlie's next next uh, uh, visit to us will be 
on that intro episode, like we did with the Bond series. We're just going to sit around for the evening and talk about our experiences of, of Star Trek and also our preconceptions, what, what we like at the outset of the series, what we don't like. And that'll be the films, but it'll also be the TV series. And then we will go on very like this to review all the films, uh, including the new one, Star Trek Beyond. And we will also do commentaries and rankings. So Charlie is uh, is a guest for that. Okay, well, that, that's it for tonight, Charlie. Thank you for your contributions on music across the, the series. Obviously, you'll be with us all the way through for Star Trek, and at the moment, that's looking like it's going to be 19 episodes. So more details when we get to the intro will tell you what's coming. But we've loosely sketched out a 19-episode series. So Bond has been a 37-episode series, so roughly half as long. And uh, so where can we find you uh, on social media? Um, at Films on Wax. And there you go. That's his, uh, and there's also your um, website, Films on Wax. That's now part. That's now sort of migrated to a new home, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so that's part of the digital fix now. So you can go to filmsonwax.thedigitalfix.com. Okay. Excellent. Becca, where can we find you on the internet? I am at r underscore view movies. I will change it eventually. Yeah. Let's not start that again. But anyway, <laughs> that's, where you can find me. that's where you can find me on Twitter. Okay, Chris. Uh, you can follow me at Cinematronics, and uh, you can find this uh, fine podcast as well as uh, all the other podcasts I do at uh, Cinematronics.co.uk. You can find me at the Pasty Kid nineteen seventy six. You can find this show at Expect Us to Talk on Twitter and Facebook.com forward slash Expect Us to Talk. And do you expect us to talk? We'll return with the Spectre Reviewmentary. <laughs> <laughs>